0: This is God's Word. Please be seated. If you're visiting with us inside of the outline is uh, an outline that you can use inside of the announcement sheet is an outline that you can use as we go through uh, our study of Psalm 63. We're going to look at all 11 verses this morning. And uh, to begin with, we want to to bow our heads and join our hearts and ask God to bless us in this study. And I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer this time. Father, I, I am so grateful for the music that we sing and the way that, that, that melody and, and words can sometimes merge in, in such a special way that, that we feel lifted up closer to You and You brought closer to us and, and we're humbled by that and we're inspired by that. And we're grateful, Father, that You draw us closer together with each other as we sing toward You and to praise Your name and to hallow Your name and to glorify You and to love You, Father, when we think about all of the precious gifts that You've poured out on us. We love You for Your sake. We're grateful for the blessings, but we love You for Your sake. For You are You are beautiful and magnificent and You are loving and merciful and compassionate to us. And we are grateful for these words that are opened up before us that Jim has just read to us, Father. We're we're grateful for not only their beauty, but even more so for what they mean and and what they inspire and, and cause us to aspire to. And so as we read them and ponder them and, and meditate on them and study them this morning, Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that You will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear them and to be transformed by them, Father, to people who have You as our highest desire. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all the church said, have you ever gone to to see a movie only for the movie to not be what you thought it was going to be about? Yeah, it happens. A couple of years ago, a friend a friend of mine and I we went to go uh, see a movie. Our wives were out of town. We went to go see a Liam Neeson movie entitled The Gray. And afterwards, uh, we went across the street, ordered tacos, discussed the movie, and this is what this movie communicated to us: that number one world is a cold and dangerous place. Number two, that happiness is a liability because everyone you love dies. And if they don't die, they're at least going to leave you in another way. Number three, your journey takes you into the heart of wolf country. Number four, you're in a fight for your life. And it's at this point in the movie where this this poem, uh, very famous poem, is said, once more into the fray, into the last good fight I'll ever know, Live and die this day, live and die this day. You're in this fight for your life. And then, number five, and finally, oh, yes, you're on your own. You're doing it by yourself. Very ex- existential, uh, very dark, very depressing. I mean, not so much that we couldn't eat our tacos and then go for dessert afterwards, but it's a dark movie. It is a dark movie and it's very 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 secular. There is no hint of God nor even a whiff of transcendence in this movie. Secularism, if if we were to define it, it would go something like this. That human beings are all alone. It's just us. That's what secularism is 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 really about at its core that human beings are alone. And as you know, the Bible describes some very, very dark moments for humans. And one character who probably knew them as well as any human who lived was a fellow by the name of King David, the author of this psalm. King David of Israel was a man who knew about fights and fights for his life. He had been in a few. Psalm 63 finds David once more going into the fray. He's wondering if on that very day he's going to be able to live or if he's going to die. When you look at verse 9 of Psalm 63, there are people that are out to get Him. They want to kill Him. And in verse 11, it's happening at a time when He is the King. The subscript for the psalm says that it was written while David was in the desert of Judah. David was a guy that was acquainted with, with the desert. The psalm, I think, was most likely written during the attempted coup I mean, every time I, I, I think about this particular portion of David's life, it, it's a very emotional moment for me. Uh, it's an attempted coup by David's son Absalom. How how tragic that must have been for him to have loved a son so deeply and so so profoundly and for that son to try to, to move him off of the throne by killing him. And even when Absalom dies, uh, the text is very poignant in Second Samuel. It says when the word is given to David that Absalom has been killed, the words are literally, the king was shaken. And he cried, Oh Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. And that's the one that's trying to move him off of the throne. And David knows that Absalom is coming with all of his armed men. David has to flee the palace. He has to get out of Jerusalem. It is a dark, dark, dark day. And as he leaves, and this is found in 2 Samuel chapter 15. As he leaves and crosses the Kidron Valley, going out east across the Kidron Valley over the Mount of Olives, the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. I don't know about you. I've had some pretty bad days. But not like that. Not like that. And you'd have to wonder, as David is going through all of this, what is the temptation for David here? What's the temptation for David to say that the world is only a cold, cold place? Is the temptation for David to say that, you know, happiness is really a liability, especially when it seems that everyone you love, it seems that everyone you love is going to let you down or leave you or forsake you? What do you do on a day like that when a beloved son turns into a wolf that is stalking you? And it seems that it's a fight just to continue existing. But here's the thing. There's a huge difference for David. There's a huge difference. Although David's life has taken a turn for the worse, David knows he is not alone. David knows he's not alone. David... David knows that there's a larger reality than the flat horizons on his human sight. One of the really striking features of this psalm is that David is not groping with the questions of whether or not God exists. He's not out there going, I wonder if there's a God. I wonder if there's somebody out there listening to me. It's it's not like David is finding himself in a foxhole for the first time praying. One of the really striking features of this psalm is that God... Is a part of David's life in the good times and the bad times. Now, you know, sometimes trouble causes people to ask if God really exists. Sometimes trouble causes people to wonder if there's really even a God out there. But David is none of these things. Why? It's because David has intimacy with the infinite. David knows God. David has intimacy with the infinite. Here's David's life. It's sinking in the quicksand. And nothing can sink you faster than the knowledge of people wanting to take your life to do the worst kind of harm to you. And what David needs is something firm to stand on. And God, all of a sudden, in David's life, becomes this rock that rises up beneath his feet. But the question is, how in the world did David get there to that place where God is that rock while he's standing in quicksand? Well, I think one of the first things you notice about the psalm is the intimacy of the language. Doesn't, David does not speak about God. He doesn't start rambling off all the attributes of God. If you notice in the psalm, as, as Jim read it, David is speaking to God. This is, this is not, this is not a, a, a psalm that is, is really telling us a bunch of new things, uh, uh, facts about God's character and nature and all of the universe. What this is, is is personal disclosure of David's experience of God. The psalm is full of personal language. And nowhere is that better seen than in the first five words of the psalm You, God, are my God. David starts off You, God, are my God. I want you in, in your Bible, if you've got them open, to Psalm 63, or maybe if you've got a smart device out. You can highlight those, that word "my." What is so significant about that little possessive pronoun "my"? Well, it's this: it's the language of covenant. It's it's the language of of, of covenant between David and God, and and God and His people, going all the way to Genesis chapter 17 and verse 7. You know. God is making this very special covenant with Abraham and He says, I will confirm My covenant as a perpetual covenant between Me and you. Personal language here. God is speaking and it's personal language between Abraham and God. He says, it will extend to your descendants after you. The the relationship that I'm entering into today, Abraham, is not just going to be something that ends with your death, but it will continue throughout all of the, the lives of your descendants throughout their generations I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. God says to Abraham, I'm your God. A couple of centuries later, you know, he talks in Genesis 17 about it being some 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 generations later, some centuries later, God refers to Israel who at this time are enslaved to Egypt as my people. In in Exodus chapter 3 verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of of whom? Say it. My people. I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. Later, God says to favor through Moses and Aaron, most famous lines that, uh, that, uh, that have ever been, been, been spoken by Charlton Heston. He says, let what? My people go. My God and my people. My people and my God. My God and my people. What does it mean? It means this. That intimacy between the finite and the infinite is possible. It means that you can have a relationship with God. That God is seeking to have a relationship with you. Years ago, you know, my kids grew up in the church like many of your kids have grown up in the church. When my little daughter, uh, Jessica, was three years old, we're in the auditorium of our sponsoring church in La Mesa, California. The church is going to send us to Brazil as, as missionaries. She's bouncing around after the assembly that morning like little three-year-old kids do. She grabbed the leg of a man thinking it was my leg. And uh, she looked up expecting to see my face and it was another face looking down that said, well, hello there. And Jessica let go of that leg, ran over to my leg, grabbed my leg and held on for all of life and said, my daddy. When you say my daddy or my father, my God, it means something special. There's a, a, a trail from the heart of my kids to my heart. There's... there's um. When they say my daddy, it means that I'm somebody that they can lean into. That they can put their weight on me. That they don't have to wonder if they can call out in the middle of the night for water or if they're scared. I mean, just imagine, you know, you're in the middle of the night and you hear your child asking for water or or, or calling out, you know, father or mother. I mean, what mother or father does not get up and give the glass of water the extra blanket or lay down beside them and make them feel okay? You know, if my neighbor, my 80-year-old neighbor down the street does that, I'm probably not going to get out of bed. But my kids have a trail straight to my heart. That's what it means to say, my God. In fact, let's say that as a church because... This this is so important for us to get down in our thinking, and and not just in our thinking, but in the way that we live. Say these words with me. You, God, are my God. You, God, are my God. Let's say it again, but let's say it with gusto. You, God, are my God. And because that's true, then knowing God becomes the preeminent focus of all of life. There's a a, a bunch of us that really kind of like to to read uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And um, there's a great quote from Bonhoeffer, one of his, his most famous books, The Cause of Discipleship, that he wrote prior to uh, World War II. Bonhoeffer wrote, How can you hope to enter into communion with Him, speaking of God, when at some point in your life you're running away from Him? There is a transition that has to happen in your relationship with God if it's going to move forward into maturity. You know, what, what is the first thing you experience when, when you're, you're truly... Converted to God. Well, one of the things that, that happens it, it you initially typically come to God for what it is that God is giving you. You've done something in your life and you you feel just sort of dark and you, you feel filthy and, and sort of nasty, and the one thing that you want more than anything else in life is just to be forgiven. Just to be forgiven, to, to, to be loved, and to be forgiven. Or it might be that, that you come to God because there's something that's going on in your life and you need God to kind of solve the problem of your life. It might be any a number of things. But your relationship with God can't stay there. If it does, then what you're really worshiping is, is God's stuff. You're worshiping God's things and not God. And that relationship is very, very superficial. You know, I've, I've confessed... Many times, that one of my favorite movies, and you're not going to believe this, you got mail. Two people, as you know, connect through the internet and begin this email relationship that begins to take on a certain kind of trajectory. It begins with some superficial conversation that leads to deeper and more complex conversation and the bearing of hearts. And it grows to the point where they're no longer satisfied with emails, but they want to meet in person to meet the real person behind the great emails. Now this is what has happened to David. David has moved from from loving God because of God's stuff, because of God's blessings, because of God's things. He has moved from loving God's stuff to loving God. That's why he says in Psalm 63 and verse 3, your love is better than life. Your love is better than life. That's a pretty amazing statement. And it's probably an even more amazing experience. It's said a bit differently in Psalm 73. Asaph is saying it this time. He says, Whom have I in heaven but You? And earth has nothing I desire besides You. So he's now past some years. Christian writer Henri Nouwen has written that the question is not how many people take you seriously? How much are you going to get accomplished? The question is not can you show me some results? The question is, do you love the Messiah? Do you love the Christ? David says, Psalm 63, verse 1, I I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and a parched land where there is no water. David's, David's soul, for, for David, his soul without God becomes dehydrated. David knows without a God-saturated soul that all he's ever going to see are the mirages out there. The things that are illusory, that, that are not real. And that's why a daily relationship building activity is so absolutely necessary. To be able to go through all of life and know that you're not alone. In this psalm, David lists 13 verbs that describe his interaction with God. And and just listen, listen to this list. He's seeking and thirsting and longing and seeing and beholding and glorifying. And twice he says, I'm praising and I'm lifting up hands to God. I am fully satisfied with God. I'm remembering God. I'm thinking God. I'm singing to God. I'm clinging to God. These are all the things that David does all the time to make sure that he doesn't lose his grip of, on God. These are the things that he's experiencing with God on a daily basis to make sure that he's still got a hold of God and God's got a hold of him. Now, you know what it's like to live in this life, right? There are so many temptations. there's so many struggles. there's so many moments that are sad. There are the successes that can really knock us down, even more so than the, than the despair at times. And all of those things are pressure to let go, to loosen the grip on God. But what David is doing on a daily basis is singing to him. And remembering why he's satisfied. And clinging to God. And lifting his hands up to God. And praising God. And singing to God. And seeking God with all of His might. And that's one of the things that makes the difference. And although there are men that are approaching him to kill him, he is secure in God. You know, it... I, I've told you this story before, and I, I'm going to tell it again if if you don't mind bearing with me. You know, one of the greatest examples of this uh, that I've seen, probably experienced in my own life, was uh, uh, probably a, a year or so before my father died, uh, as you know, very very ill, could not breathe, uh, with the COPD, had struggled with cancer, uh, had a kidney removed, and or excuse me, a, a bladder removed, and you know there were just bags hanging on him and. You know, his life was just, the quality of his life was, was was not even close to what it had been earlier in his life when he was robust and was a rancher and owned his own business and later on went to work uh, in D.C. in the Department of Agriculture and all of that good stuff that he had accomplished in his life. His life was just becoming really, really heavy. And he had all kinds of tubes coming out of him, going with fluids into all kinds of bags. And we're wanting some of those to at least be removed. And after two or three strikes with some surgery, it's not going to happen. And I think my mother and I were probably a little bit more, well, I know we were probably a little bit more down than he was after the doctor came out and told us that it's just not going to happen. This is the way it's going to be for the rest of his life. And that's the way it was. And uh, we get him back to the house. He has not eaten uh, for a while, so I'm... uh, I'm boiling a couple of eggs for him and making him a cup of coffee. Mom's gone off to the Walmart there in Fredericksburg to get the prescription. And while I'm there getting that cup of coffee ready for him, I hear my dad sitting in his chair there by the French doors looking out into the hills of the hill country. And he, go, he goes, Mark, I just don't know why. And I go, you, you don't know why what, Dad? And he goes, I just don't know why God is so good to me. And that will be the uh, sort of the 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 one of the ending memories I have of my father is is in his dark, heavy moment. He knew he wasn't alone. He was able to to see all of all of the greatness of, of God's love and mercy and compassion to the weight of that falling on him even though his body was falling apart and breaking down. And not long after that, even his mind began to break down. But in probably one of his most clear spiritual moments, all he could see was just the greatness of God. And the reason for that is that some some time earlier he had made God his highest desire in life. And I, I'm just here to relay that story to you to tell you that it, it, it's not just a David story. It's our story. I, I couldn't tell you why brokenness, the real reasons behind uh, brokenness a lot of the time and, and despair and, and why bad things can happen to us in this life. But what I am here to tell you is that you don't go through them alone. And there are times when you go through them, through that that dark time, or you go through that that moment of pain or agony, trouble, adversity, whatever it might be, that you actually become closer to God and and realize that all of the other stuff out there in the desert is just a mirage. is not real. But the most real thing is how God satisfies your soul when it comes to all of life. Jeff, lead us in a song of praise right now. And some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Maybe today is the day that you ask the church to pray for you as you seek to see God more clearly in your own life because of the things that are happening in your life. Or maybe this is the day where you say, I I want to love God for all of His blessings and I want to love God Himself because I know that God loves me and has given me the greatest gift, and that is the opportunity through His grace to come into His, into relationship with Him as a child, as a daughter, as a son, to Him as a father. Whatever it might be, these shepherds are going to be down here at the front to minister to you and, and to love you and to talk to you and to pray with you. Come down to the front and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God Amen. together. When peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrow